So, today, I come with fear and trepidation, <laughs> nervous and rats, do I have to teach on this? And um, no, I don't. So we're going to switch to a whole new subject. Uh, I can't, I know I have the freedom to do that, but um, my hope today is to talk about a hopeful understanding of the end times. I grew up in a denomination that uh, taught me one particular category of end times thinking. And for about 1,800 years, the early church, the church, didn't have a complicated view of end times. It was quite simple. So, <laughs> today, my hope is to introduce you to some other categories and perspectives on end times thinking. I can't tell you which one is right, but I'll tell you this. Here's my history. Subject of hell and end times, I've put on the back burner ever since Bible college. It was so cotton-picking confusing. I couldn't figure out which chart, and I'll show you some charts so you can see where the confusion comes from. But I've been hearing about end times. I saw movies that scare the hell right out of you. I got saved so many times. Man, just to make sure. Anybody? Anybody? Holy smokes. Damages people. I believe your view of the end times actually impacts a lot more than you want to admit. You may say, well, I don't really have a view. Yes, you do. Everybody has a view of end times. Even unbelievers have a view of end times. And some of them are far more biblical than the crap, which is Christian rules and procedures, that we brought into the church. Some have a view of a better world, one that's more green and well taken care of, to take care of Mother Earth. We say, ooh, that's all new agey. Uh, where do you think they got the roots of that truth from, folks? God Almighty. He started it, and then other groups distort it. But the foundation truth is still true. Some people think the world's going to end something like this. Back in 1987, 88 reasons why the rapture will be in 1988. Hmm. Either I'm not really one of the chosen. Well, I, the prediction wasn't right. So he wrote another one in 1980. Oh, by the way, 4.5 million copies of this book sold. It obviously didn't work. So he revised the book. 89 reasons why Jesus will come back in 89. Oh, it's funny. It shows you how gullible people are. It gets worse. He just keeps updating and updating and updating this book. And still sells. Look at this. In 1995 edition, still sold 300,000 copies. What would you call a prophet who keeps messing up his prophecy? False! Rich. <laughs> You nailed it. Oh, yeah. I did not see that coming. Rich. 
<laughs> oh my. Yeah, I've always wondered, what if I could, I could do some pretty good law books and, and, uh, and sell a lot of good books, but my conviction in my heart can't and won't let me do that. But this is the kind of stuff that shows how naive and gullible people are. So, how do we deal with this? I want to talk about the kingdom. Because this is about a view of our kingdom of God. Some people believe the kingdom of God hasn't come yet. And with it comes signs and wonders and miracles. Most everybody agrees that when the kingdom comes, the signs will be there too. The kingdom of God. What is it? Oh, we're, we're working for the kingdom to come. And some believe it has already arrived. So I want to get into a story that when I heard this story, <gasps> my hope, hopeful eschatology. Eschatology just means the study of end times. That's what eschatology means. When I read this next story in the Bible, I'm going to read it to you as well. I'll tell you first a little bit about it because it's way too long to read. But in Daniel chapter 2, Daniel chapter 2, we have a story of Nebuchadnezzar having a dream. Remember, they have captured Jerusalem. They've taken some, some of the servants from there. That's where we get Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, all those guys, did that trip across the desert so they would become brainwashed to become the new ambassadors of the Babylonian religion and put it on to the Jews that were coming. It was a great setup. Brilliant move. Brilliant kingdom. The Babylonian kingdom. So Nebuchadnezzar, has this dream, but he wakes up and can't remember what it was. And so he calls his wise men, the magicians, and all these guys who are supposed to be really good at this stuff, say, okay, I need someone interp to interpret my dream. And, and not only that, I forget what it was, so tell me what it was. So the wise men said, well, tell us your dream, and we'll happily help. And it says in scripture, he, the king thought they were trying to trick him said, hang on, you tell me the dream as well and the interpretation, or I'm going to kill you all, burn your houses, and just destroy you completely to dust. But just tell us the dream. And then he finally said, nobody in history has asked this of wise men. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, great one. Butter up, butter up, butter up. He made a decree to kill them all. So as they were heading to kill Daniel, who was one of the wise men, Turns out, Daniel asked, what is this all about? And then he heard the story, the guy had a dream. Oh, oh boy, let me talk to the king, quick, like really quick. And sure enough, the guy who was going to go do the killing was wise and brought him to the king. He said, king, what's gone on? And he hears the story, and finally he asked the king for an extension. So he got the extension. And he and Dan, uh, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego got together and they prayed. Basically saying, God, tell us the dream or we're dead. That's the uh, English translation. And then you have a really nice version in here. You know, oh, Lord, if Father, praise thy name. And God gives him the revelation. God gives Daniel the actual dream and the interpretation. If one wasn't enough, he got double. Like, that's seriously cashing in. Good job, Daniel. So he goes to the king, and here's what happens. Uh, the king said to Daniel, also known as Belshazzar, 
Is this true? Can you tell me what my dream was and what it means? Daniel replied, There are no wise men, enchanters, musicians, magicians, or fortune tellers who can tell the king such things. But there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets, and he has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the future. Now I will tell you your dream and the visions you saw as you lay in your bed. While your majesty was sleeping, you dreamed about coming events. The revealer of mysteries has shown you what is going to happen. And it is not because I am wiser than any living person that I know the secret of your dream, but because God wanted you to understand what you were thinking about. Because he had said he'd been upset and this had bugged him and was disturbing him. That's why I wanted to know what the dream was and the meaning. Your majesty, in your dream, you saw in front of you a huge, powerful statue of a man, shining brilliantly, frightening and awesome. The head of the statue is made of fine gold. Its chest and arms were of silver. Its belly and thighs were of bronze. Its legs were of iron, and its feet were a combination of iron and clay. But as you watched, a rock was cut from a mountain by supernatural means, or in another translation, not from human hands. It's critical, yeah. We'll come back to that. It struck the feet of the iron and clay, smashing them to bits. The whole statue collapsed into a heap of iron, clay, bronze, silver, and gold. The pieces were crushed as small as chaff on a threshing floor, and the wind blew them all away without a trace. But that rock that knocked the statue down grew and became a mountain and covered, here it is, the whole earth. <laughs> this is so cool. That was a dream. Now I will tell your majesty what it means. Your majesty, you are a king over many kings. The God of heaven has given you sovereignty, power, strength, and honor. He has made you the ruler of all the inhabited world and has put even the animals and birds under your control. You are the head of gold. That was the biggest butter-up statement I've ever heard. But that tells you how big the dynasty of Babylon was. Okay? It's pretty good. But after your kingdom comes to an end, another great kingdom, inferior to yours, will rise to take your place. After that kingdom has fallen, yet a third great kingdom, represented by bronze belly and thighs, will rise to the rule of the world. Following that kingdom, there will be a fourth great kingdom, as strong as iron. And the kingdom will smash and crush all previous empires. Hint, hint. Just as iron smashes and crushes everything it strikes. The feet and toes you saw were a combination of iron and clay show that this kingdom will be divided. Some parts of it will be as strong as iron, others as weak as clay. The mixture of iron and clay also shows that these kingdoms will try to strengthen themselves by forming alliances with each other through intermarriage, but this will not succeed just as iron and clay do not mix. During the reign of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. Let me repeat that in case you didn't hear it. Never 
be destroyed. This is Old Testament. Are you kind of starting to put two and two together yet? I hope you will. If not, I'm going to put it all together for you. All right. Uh... It will shatter all the kingdoms into nothingness, but it will stand forever. That is the meaning of the rock cut from the mountain by supernatural means, crushing to dust the statue of iron, bronze, clay, silver, and gold. The great God has shown your majesty what will happen in the future. The dream is true, and its meaning is certain. All right. Heads up. Every single denomination, historical kind of theology person agrees on what most of those items are, the head and all that stuff. The head is obviously Babylon, okay? 605 to 539. The next item of silver is the Persian Medes, great kingdom that came, but it was lesser. This is history playing itself out. There's a countdown to something really big about to happen. So that's Persia. Then the Greece came in. And then, of course, Rome is iron. But the feet, iron and clay, divided nations. This is the one that, well, let's just say there's some differences of opinion of what those feet are. Some have heard or have said, you, you cut off the feet and you throw it 2,000 years in the future, separating it from the actual prophecy, but somehow there's going to be like 10 nations, the, they used to call it the Union, the European Union before, because remember it was at 8 and then 9, and oh my goodness, it's 10, it's time for the end of the world. That's what I grew up with. And now it's how many? 25. See? <laughs> Chillax, people. Get a new author. Good grief. What if we find out that this follows an exact succession? Rome was one of the largest and most powerful empires of that time. It had covered the world, and it was a time of absolute peace. There were no wars. That's important because, remember, there's a prophecy. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, they didn't know what that was. There were none. So here's what's happened. Let me get the dates right because it will matter. Um, okay. The point of Daniel chapter 2. I'll get to that in a second. That rock coming in. There's two parts to that rock. First, it's a rock from a mountain, which is of a physical nature. Okay? Is that clear? Physical? But then, cut without hands, of a spiritual nature, his deity. It's Jesus Christ. The rock is Jesus. And you're going to see the theme of Jesus being the rock, the cornerstone, all these things throughout Scripture. They're there. He is the rock that lands at exactly the right time. He is the king who's landed on kingdom earth. His kingdom has come. It's not coming. It is now here. It had happened 2,000 years ago. Let me give you some history that's really important. I hope I have this organized. This, this is really hard to get ready. Caesar, he was called the king of kings. The term king of kings was not a biblical term. It was a Roman term. Caesar had noticed his kingdom got so big that it was in 27 BC, before Christ, that Rome was now divided into how many provinces? 
10 provinces. Each had a king. It was too big. They were getting, it was too difficult to manage that much stuff going on. And right until um, 14 AD, that, that Caesar was alive. But that's when a divided kingdom, the clay and the iron, the Romans and the Jews, and, and even within the Ro- in Romans, they were dividing in and among themselves. And you can start to see the attempts of trying to take out people and, and try and become, well, ruthless. Nero, of course, was one of the worst. He was one of the worst. Anybody know what his nickname was? The Beast. Let me just drop that bomb for a minute. There's a reason I'm telling you that. This rock, when it crashes in, and when did it happen? By the way, when were the 10, the 10 uh, provinces? 27 BC to 14 AD. What significant event happened in that time period? Jesus was born. Absolutely. Right in that time, the rock came, crushed it. To me, what this does, it gives me new hope that the work of advancing the kingdom of God is good news. It's not a defeatist mentality. Oh my goodness, the world's going to get worse and I'm just here to escape. I know people that used to collect up their Y2K bundles in the basement. I had to clean so much crap out of my parents' place because they did the same thing. The rotten food and the mice that ate through all kinds of stuff all because of fear, 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 fear. Wait a minute. If the rapture's coming, why are you storing up stuff if you're going to escape? Just in case you may not make it. Who knows? But there's actually a reason, and I'll, hopefully I'll have time to do that, because there's a perspective that the rapture won't happen until after the tribulation, so people are trying to stock up food so that they live through the tribulation, just like the Israelites, when the plagues of Egypt hit, they were fine, but the Egyptians were not. So there was that mentality, that an idea of what can happen. It's very, very interesting. I'm getting very excited about what I'm learning and what I have been learning about end times. I didn't realize how this story would impact everything else now. Now I get to see the kingdom come. It's here now. Lots is happening. It's progressive. It is growing I heard a statistic that uh, the birth rate of the world is like, what, 1.6%, something like that, maybe a little bit more. But the spiritual birth rate of people becoming Christians is 7 or 8%. Something's happening. You may not think so in this country. And if you live by CNN or CTV News, you're in trouble. That is not the gospel. Every one of these books that have been written, and I remember Grant Jeffrey, remember that guy? He wrote so many books. I happened to be working at Mitchell Family Books one time, and the day, that, uh, might have been Y2K, all these fear books were free in the front hall the very next day. I thought, nobody's going to even want the free one. Use it as kindling. It's useless. And he's not the only one. There are so many other self-proclaimed prophets who have said so many things. Be careful. There are other ways to see the scriptures and interpret the good news that is here and growing. I don't want to live from a place of fear. But many of the, the end times teachings that I have grown up with have fed fear, which to me is not Jesus. Jesus. 
That should be obvious. But we buy it hook, line, and sinker. <laughs> it can be really confusing. But if that 10 feet coincides with the 10 provinces and it fits exactly with, like we're talking to the year. And by the way, think for just a minute, why do you think the wise men happened to show up right around that time? Maybe they saw something that was obvious to them. It was already prophesied. There's more going on than you think. A lot more. And there's no way even, I can do 10 messages on this, and there's no way to cover it all. I'm giving you snapshots of things that have triggered and touched my heart that's forcing me to go back to Scripture and go, okay, what about this? I'll give you two books at the very end that I think will be very helpful in teasing you into exploring another perspective that you may not know about. What's next? Click. Why is this battery dead? Did somebody put dead batteries back into the... Uh, oops, oops, oops. Okay, so, end times. Here are some old charts of what I grew up with, of trying to figure out when Jesus is coming back and what's going to happen when. So, look, look at that. Ooh, we, uh, dragons. Ooh, a weird animal with a face. Of, like, we're talking wild imagery. And then it gets better. Here's another one. This is from Daniel's 70th week um, uh, description. All these fancy, really well done diagrams. And you've got to be super religious to understand them. All right? Now, oh, here's one even worse. Like, try and figure that out. All right? And a lot of these have to do with trying to understand the book of Revelation. Four major views that we're going to talk about today. I want to give you an understanding. I think this is going to be helpful to you, to know the different views. Some may think they have heard three different views, but there's a really good chance it's just one view split up three times. The first one is called futurism. Futurism believes that the book of Revelation is in the future. It's typical of our Western world. It's a new teaching. 160-year-old tops. That's when this teaching came out. And there's a guy named Darby that kind of introduced it and ended up in, a, in the Schofield Bible in 1906. And if it's in the Schofield Study Bible, everybody's getting it. So it was the dominant teaching. And it was assumed since it's written in Scripture, study Bible is not the same thing as Scripture. But, ooh, it's amazing how we bought in. By the way, I bought in. I did. I, I, that's all I knew. You only know what you're told. It's okay. So hopefully today, I'm going to have some light bulbs turn on and go, I didn't hear this before. Shoot. This, this could change a lot of stuff. Yes. It changes everything. It makes you look at the future better. It makes you look at other people better. That's my hope. So here we go. Uh, all the bad stuff in Scripture is going to still happen. That's what futurism is. Uh, that's where we get post-trib, pre-trib, mid-trib, all that stuff. That's, that's all futurism. The next one's called historicism. Most Reformation pastors believe this. John Calvin was one. 1500 to 1700s, the book of Acts and Revelation, were the beginning of church history, like a church age. Right now, we could be living in chapter 18. 
But what the problem with this one is, it keeps shifting because based on who is a, a world leader, when Hitler was, oh, it must be Hitler, so we must be in this chapter. Oh, it's this guy. Oh, and we keep shifting. Nothing is, it's fluid. And very, very few people believe in this one anymore. Idealism, spiritual view. The whole thing's an allegory. Just like Lord of the Rings. You know, it's, it's just a picture that we're supposed to understand. It's not really real. It's just a story. Moving on. Preterism. From the Latin word for having already happened. This has happened in the first century. The idea of preterism is that Revelation, the book, and the prophecy of Matthew 25 and 5 have already happened. A partial preterist will say it's already happened, but we still have Jesus coming back. There is still the final judgment and the coming of Christ. That's what partial preterism is. But the idea is it's, it's already happened in the past. That may seem weird, but when you start to look at history and look at who it was written to and how they understood things. Here's an example. Do you remember when Jesus said, um, um, when you see the armies come, the abomination of desolation, the army. The abomination of desolation is the Roman army. It says it right there. It's not that hard. Read English. Simple. When you see the army coming, run out to the mountains. Do not go back and get your coat and iPod. Run. Get out. Which, by the way, you may not realize that if an army comes, the most natural thing to do is run into the city because then you have walls that will protect you. Absolutely. Josephus recorded that not a single believer was killed in the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. It was the most horrific time in Jewish history. The tribulation has happened according to what we just saw happen in that city. It's worth it to go do some research so it's not just Pastor Mike saying it all happened. That's, that's nice. I believe this, but I want you to dig deeper yourself so it becomes your truth, not mine. I'm seeing more hope. If all this has happened already, how much more has happened that we've been told is still going to happen? Hmm. Big picture. So when they ran out of the city, they went to the mountains. In fact, the, uh, the, the Roman guy in charge, Titus, came in the city, stopped, pulled back, and it was at that time that all the Christians escaped. History. Let history speak. And Josephus has been one of the most powerful historians that have given us an insight into what happened in 70 AD that will blow your mind. Absolutely blow it. So let's take a quick look. So, futurism. The idea that all the stuff's going to happen in the future. Three dominant views for future. The point is, pre-trib means that at some point, the church is going to be raptured. The word rapture is not in the Bible. Just so you know. So, apparently there's going to be a rapture of just believers. And then there'll be seven years of hell on earth. And then the second coming of Christ comes. Then there'll be a thousand years of rain. And then we have the last judgment in eternity. I, I, I grew up with this one because that's what um, Thief in the Night and Distant Thunder and all those movies said was going to happen. Actually, no, it happened before. It was pre. It's right. 
But anyway, the other one says, well, we're going to experience part of it. So believers are going to experience part of the tribulation, not all of it. These guys say, oh, we're going to escape it. In 1989, people were buying trampolines and doing rapture practice. And the TBN, listen, TBN TV station was doing rapture alerts on TV. So, that's how seriously people were taking this. Now, can you imagine telling them they're wrong? Can you imagine being what the reaction to you would be? The number one word would be heretic. Because you've bought in. And the reason I'm doing today's message the way I'm doing it is to say, hey, don't be calling anybody a heretic that may see it differently than you do. There are legitimate perspectives that need to be understood. And they do get it from Scripture. They're all biblical. What does that mean? <laughs> and then, of course, you have your pre-tribulation and your, your uh, uh, post-tribulation. That, oh, you're, it's going to suck for you. You're going to go through the tribulation. And then you get raptured. So that's what the futurism is. Then we have, let me give you a, a picture of the four different interpretations so you have an idea of what they are. Um, preterism says that it's all been fulfilled before 400 A.D., Historicism says it's been fulfilled. Um, idealism says there's nothing, it's just a story. And then futurism says it's all coming. Hell on earth is coming. Armageddon's coming. Oh, there's going to be a big slaughter, blah, 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 all that stuff. Um, historicism was developed around the time of the Reformation and claims the book of Revelation unfold history down to this present day. Generally regards the millennium as a spiritual reign of Christ through his church. It's called um, millennialism. Futurism says it is developed around 1835 and claims the book of Revelation concerns our present day and immediate future, including a rapture. It is generally regarded millennium as the literal physical reign of Christ on earth from Jerusalem. This is called premillennialism. Preterism was developed between the 2nd and 4th centuries and claims that the book of Revelation largely concerned, uh, with, concerned the time it was written, around 65 AD. That's critical. I'll tell you why in a minute. It is immediate, the immediate future. Uh, it generally regards the millennium as the ministry of Christ through his church leading to the return of Christ and the culmination of his redemptive plan. This is called post-millennialism. Second century. The reason it's believed the book of Revelation was written before 70 AD is that event was so huge and wiped out all Jewish sacrifice. The entire temple was absolutely destroyed. Nothing was left. All the records were completely destroyed. Not a single priest person, they were killed, most of them. Uh, were, the, all the records were completely destroyed. Therefore, they could not prove their lineage anymore. It is impossible for the Jewish system to come back into play today. Impossible. And God made sure it was so. Because that covenant was not for us. And when the Jews were saying, no, Jesus, Put it on us, put it on us. And sure enough, it was that generation that was going to get the vengeance of the Lord. They took it on based on the covenant. They rejected the king who had arrived. And there was great bloodshed. It was brutal. It's really, there's a lot of gross stories. If you like gore and stuff like that, great reading. Lots there. Partial preterism. Oh, we talked about that already. Let's go to the temple for a minute. This temple's really important. Let me take a look at, uh, okay, I'll come back to this. We'll go to this one first. Matthew 5. This is a question that always comes up. 
And when people are talking about, okay, how do we know it's not the end of the world? Because people think, well, Jesus is talking about the end of the world, or is he? I don't believe he's talking about the end of our earth. He's talking about the end of an era. The word era. Um, oh, shoot, now I forgot. The Greek word for world is cosmos. Um, the word uh, era is uh, aeon. That's the word there, not end of the world. You'll see it over and over and over again in the New Testament. He's not talking about the end of the world, cosmos. He's talking about the end of an era. Which era? I believe the Mosaic era, the law era. Don't misunderstand why I've come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. Heaven and earth. We've been told these are the elements. Literal heaven and earth will be destroyed. Hmm, what if you saw something that the Jews saw? What if there's another way to see this that you have no clue about? This blew my mind. It's coming. Matthew 24, in the same way, when you see all these things, you can know this, his return is very near, right at the door. Listen to this. I tell you the truth, this generation, the generation is 40 years. It was exactly 40 years later that Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed. One generation. He was speaking to the people of that day. This generation will not pass from the scene until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will disappear, but my words will never disappear. Okay, what's this heaven and earth then? Mark 13, so I tell you the truth, this generation will not pass from the scene before all these things take place. Heaven and earth will disappear, but my words will never disappear. People have taken this, thrown it into the future, say, well, until we're all destroyed in a new heaven and new earth, that, that's got to be what it means. That's not what it means. Not, a, not as I am starting to see it with a far more hopeful lens. Take a look. Either heaven and earth have passed away, or you're still under the law. Period. Yes? No. Yes. I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why. We're not talking about the elements. Hear me out, Bev. If he says these things, the law, because he came to fulfill the law, bring it back up to its impossible and entered in a new covenant. Two things have happened. When Jesus came and when he died, a new covenant was ushered. But the old covenant, even though it was obsolete, was parallel. There was still a time where both were functioning at the same time. But it too, the old one was coming to an end in 70 AD. Came to complete close. Next. Not the end of planet Earth, but the end of planet Moses' old covenant. How then did the Jew, Jews who saw and heard Jesus, how did they understand the terms heaven and earth and sea? Remember in Revelation it says there will be no more sea? They were talking about the temple. The temple. The man-made temple. Here it goes. The Holy of Holies was the innermost part of the temple where God's presence resided and where the priests and mediators of the covenant could go. It's called heaven. Inside were angelic descriptions and images all over the place. It was considered heaven. Next, the inner court was where the Jews worshipped. This is called earth. It had a dirt floor. And then the outer courts was the sea. 
where the Gentiles could worship. Josephus. And there's a reference to where it is in the War of Jews. Heaven and earth will pass away. And he also said not a single stone will be left on top. Now, that seems a little bit ridiculous that, okay, you can destroy a building, but there's got to be some crumbling where this can be piled on top of each other. Not this one. Do you know why? When they came to destroy, they were told, don't destroy the temple. But somebody didn't listen and set it on fire. They ended up having to take every stone off to melt the gold off. They wanted all the gold from this temple. That's why every single piece was totally taken apart. Now a single stone left on top of the other. Very powerful. A lot happened that time. It's worth considering and looking at. These two books have played a big part in helping me see. The reason is, I was exposed to this about 25 years ago, and I still put it on pause. Because it didn't, wasn't excited about it, didn't make sense. But when I read this book, Raptureless, and by the way, oh, is it on there? Nope. There's, I, there's a raptureless.com. You can want, read it for free online, just so you know. But these two books have been a big encouragement to at least open up the, the subject of preterism. Now, if I taught just pre-millennial, post-millennial, and, and pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, probably wouldn't get any argument. But there's a good chance I'll get some today. <laughs> and that's okay. All I can say to you is, read these books, because they're smarter than me. My eater, <laughs> you know? Like, really, I am growing in this and learning. But I, when I saw the kingdom of Christ has come and landed, the world's not getting worse. It can get better. I really believe that. Don't go by the news. And maybe that could be the call to the believers to become far more environmentally friendly. We should be the champions of that. Yeesh, rats, I gotta change some things introduction. That's all this is. And then what I'll try and do next time is touch on some other big items of end times. What is the beast? What is the mark of the beast? Those kinds of things, just as the ones that excite me, I'll share with you, and you can do your own research. But to know there are other options, not just the one you've been sold, not just the one I've been sold, even the one that I'm clearly encouraging today, the partial preterist view, that one has got me real excited. Let me be excited about it instead of trying to point out why everything's wrong. Okay? I'm enjoying this journey. Let the Holy Spirit speak to you and find truth in all. I love the fact that Jesus is coming back. And I love the fact I get a chance to build the kingdom it's progressive. It's continuing to grow. I want to be part of that. I want to have a hope for the future, not a fear of it. That's, that's big. May the Holy Spirit reveal what is true. And if you didn't like anything I said, that's okay. That's okay. I, you guys asked for the subject. I'm cheering on the subject. <laughs> and you asked for it, you got it. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Let's pray. <laughs> Let's pray. Whew. Heavenly Father, um, yeah, however it's received. Amen.